Have you ever had something that was made out of cheap plastic and break easily, or the design of something was so complicated that it was easier to throw it away and buy a whole new assembly to save you time and headaches from fixing it? We'll be discussing six ways to help reduce these headaches, to help us when we are designing parts to make them more manufacturable, and six ways to help make the design more easily assembled. My hope is that this series of the 13 Laws of System Optimization will help give us a larger and all-encompassing perspective to help take us to the next level from our traditional lean manufacturing training. Also, we'll discuss our first ever Ask Hayden Anything question and answer session to kick off the new year of 2023. The first question is about my thoughts on the book Factory Physics and using non-normal distribution data. And the second question is about my favorite sport. Welcome back, my friends. I'm Hayden Barker from Continuous Improvement Journey, where we help take continuous improvement to the next level so you can destroy your organization's status quo, devastate your competitors, and fuel revolutionary innovation. I want to thank all those who have listened to the podcast so far. I'm excited to join with you as we travel along our continuous improvement journey. Now let's dive into our topic for this week about the 8th law of the 13 Laws of System Optimization to discuss the law of design for manufacturing and assembly. What I plan on doing is talking about the first 6 principles for design for manufacturing and then the other 6 principles about design for assembly. They are very similar to each other but are actually two different concepts. As an introduction to the design for manufacturing, In its simplest form, it is about reducing manufacturing costs and addressing potential issues in the design or product development phase. And the reason for this is that changes made in this early phase will take more time to iron out, but are the least expensive to address in terms of the overall cost of the product. As opposed to the other way around that most organizations fall into the rut of doing is spending the least amount of time in the design phase and throw the design over the wall to the manufacturing department and wash their hands of it. In doing so, the organization will incur the largest manufacturing costs and project lead times because there was no thought of how the design will affect the manufacturing process and overall costs. For the first design for manufacturing principle, we have process selection. We need to evaluate how the design of our product can be made, Will it require to be machined? Can it be manufactured using traditional manufacturing methods? Or will it require precision and tight tolerance machining? Or can it be injection molded? Anything can be designed in a CAD system with intricate shapes and features. However, the question is, can that fancy part be machined using traditional manufacturing methods and at a low cost? If so, then the overall cost of the design will be relatively cheap. Of course, all this depends on the quantity and tolerances used in the end application. A few other considerations when designing something in the world of reality is consulting with machinists or whoever will be making the part. Removing material does add to the cost of the part, and once the CNC program is created, the machining aspect for the most part is all automatic. But raw material setup costs can greatly add to the overall costs for example, each time a side of the raw material needs to be machined, the component requires to be aligned, clamped, and then unclamped. If the part is complicated, then more setup costs will occur. All this is, or 
guess should be common sense, but a lot of times common sense is hard to come by if a design engineer only lives in the reality and knowledge of their desk and CAD system. Cross-functional input and consulting should help drive process and machining considerations. When embarking on new product design, cross-functional team should be present to pitch to them the design idea and get their feedback on machining, processing, and supply chain considerations. For the second design for manufacturing principle, it is tolerance selection. Tolerances are another large factor that gets overlooked when designing products that will add to the cost of manufacturability. In general, if tight tolerance is required, the more expensive it will be to machine the product or specialized four or five axis machines will be required, which are quite a bit expensive to invest in, but are amazing machines to have to increase machining capabilities. Also, avoid the mistake of going with standard tolerances on the drawing. A funny story about this occurred at a manufacturing company that outsourced some of its parts for a fixture that had an 18-inch long handle and had a plus or minus 10 thou or ten thousandths of an inch standard tolerance according to the drawing. The handle also needed to be heat treated, and after the heat treatment, the length of the handle changed, and most of the time would fall out of that ten thou tolerance standard. The vendor came back to the manufacturing company and said, we are having a hard time hitting this tolerance because the heat treatment is changing the length after we're done machining it. After looking at the drawing, the manufacturing company ended up updating the drawing to have a plus or minus half an inch overall length tolerance. Doing so reduced the cost of the part by four times because all the scrap the vendor was having to try and hit the tolerance that was overlooked and not needed for the application. Just as tighter tolerances increase cost, the same is true for more intricate designs that will increase the cost. Which brings us to the third design for manufacturing principle, and that is the design itself. If a design is complex, has multiple components, or requires special machining, then this will result in higher cost of manufacturing. Another concept about the design should be considered is ease of maintenance and replacement of components. The components in a design are not going to last forever, and as such, maintenance and replacement of components are a must. One of my hobbies is to do mechanic work on a lot of my own cars, and I get frustrated at times when trying to replace one part on a car that requires you to take 10 other things apart to get what you need to be replaced. Once when I was younger, I was replacing the spark plugs on my mom's 1999 Chevy Blazer, and I was able to replace five out of the six spark plugs, but that last sixth spark plug was placed in a way that there was no way to fit a wrench between the frame and the top of the spark plug. There might have been some special tool that was available that I didn't know about, but from what I could see, you would have to lift the engine up out of the car a few inches to get the wrench onto the top of the spark plug. I was flabbergasted that you would have to remove the engine to change a consumable maintenance part on a car. Something that Chevrolet should have considered is following after some Japanese manufacturers that require the design engineers to assemble and replace components to help them understand the gap between their CAD system, where anything is possible to the world of reality, to the need to not have to remove an engine to replace a consumable part, like a spark plug. 
For the fourth design for manufacturing principle, it is material selection. This can be a hard concept to balance because you want to make the part last for a long time. You also want it to be cheap, so material selection can be difficult. If the cheap route is taken, then you will end up like most crappy products made in foreign countries where quality and longevity is not so good. How many times have you had something that was made out of plastic break? Yes, the part is cheap to make with injection molding and the plastic material was saved because it had a thin cross-sectional area. But if that part was to last longer or would have large amounts of stress placed on it, maybe using glass-filled plastic or maybe making that part out of aluminum would have increased the longevity of the part. However, aluminum machining or die casting would greatly increase the cost of the part. So again, balance is a key. And so most of the time we're left with crappy and cheap products. But maybe those are just consumable parts that we just throw away. For the fifth design for manufacturing principle, let's talk about the environment that the design will be used in. A funny story about this is a manufacturing company that made a fixture that allowed the operator to place four different electronic gauge dials into the fixture base made out and it was made out of alloy steel and then bolted to a flat plate. This was great for longevity of the part, but for how simple the fixture base was, it really could have just made out of a simple piece, a single piece of aluminum. The main problem with making the fixture base was that this part was shipped around the world and used in outdoors conditions and commonly near an ocean. And if you know anything about the ocean's salty seawater and metal, they don't particularly mix well. As a result, the alloy steel fixture base would rust horribly and would require the operator to clean the rust after it got shipped to them and as they used it. It would just continue to get rusty. Assemblies that are used in hot, cold, dusty, humid, salty, or corrosive conditions all require consideration during the design phase and when doing final testing. Which brings us to the sixth and last design manufacturing principle of testing and inspection. I would say that you need to go back through the previous five design for manufacturing principles and test each consideration. Is the part easy to machine? Are tolerances appropriate? Is the design easy to maintain or replace components? Are materials suitable? Does the design hold up to environmental changes? And is the design easy to inspect and has critical inspection points on the drawing? Unfortunately, we may make the mistake of testing a design in perfect conditions where the tolerances are at their nominal and, and almost perfect values. We don't do life testing or give the product to a person that is known to abuse products or equipment and don't test them in extreme environmental conditions. If we don't consider each of these six principles of design for manufacturing as a whole, then we should not be surprised by an explosion of returns from our customers and a loss of market share. Now let's switch gears and talk about design for assembly. Similar to the design for manufacturing, it is all about optimizing and the assembly process so costs and potential issues can be addressed in the design or product development phase. Again, when changes are made early in the design or development phase, it will take more time to iron out all the considerations, but long-term will have the best way to reduce the overall costs of the product. The first way to help us reduce costs for design for assembly is creating simple designs. 
Complex designs for the most part require more attention and quantity of components. As engineers, we lean more towards wanting to make the design last through eternity, which is good, but overall costs need to be balanced as well. Just because we can create a complex assembly in CAD system does not mean it should be done in reality or real life. Of course, with anything that I'm talking about, it comes with exceptions. Design for assembly for cars and especially airplanes consists of thousands or even millions of components that all need to work harmoniously together to create reliable and safe transportation. In these cases, design can even be governed by certifications and extensive testing that further increase the costs. But most would like a reliable and safe car instead of something that breaks down after 50,000 miles or kills us in a small accident. The second way to help us reduce costs for design for assembly is creating modular or interchangeable part designs. An example in the automotive industry for this is that they will put the same engine in different car models in the, of the same make. For example, the same four-cylinder engine and transmission in a Honda Civic may be the same for a Honda Accord and Honda CRV. This way, Honda does not have to build a separate engine for each car of their selection of cars. The design engineers stick with a few standard engines and build the subframe of the vehicle around that engine. They can even design a vehicle in a way that will accept the option of having a six-cylinder engine dropped in but still share most of the components of a four-cylinder car. The third way to help us reduce costs for design for assembly is effective fasteners and joining methods. Fasteners by themselves are relatively cheap, but overall might be very expensive and take a lot of time to join each subassembly together. However, some applications may require the more time-consuming and expensive route. An example of this is in the building of the Liberty ships built during World War II. In order to keep up with production and producing as many of these warships as possible, one unforeseeable disastrous idea seemed logical initially, but had a disastrous consequences later on. That idea was to replace the time-consuming riveting process of joining the outer panels of the ship with welding the panels together. This did drastically improve throughput. However, on a storm-raging sea or when temperature changes occurred, the ship would fracture and in some cases split into two because the whole ship was one piece of metal that could not flex and stop propagating cracks when irvets were used instead. When riveted plates are used, cracks can occur but stop and are isolated in that specific panel. If welding is used, the crack can propagate across the entire ship without notice. Another disaster waiting to happen is if you skimp on or use the bare minimum number of fasteners required for an inspection plate on an extreme pressure vessel. If we are not careful, the inspection plate could turn into a missile, damaging equipment or even killing somebody. Another option for joining parts is more suitable for plastic components that will snap together in some cases can still pivot or move once they're snapped together. There are hundreds of ways to join or fasten sub-assemblies, so we just need to balance the cost, the application, and the, the full assembly will be used in, and the most effective way the sub-assemblies can be assembled together. The fourth way to help us reduce costs for design for assembly is airproofing or poke yoke. Usually it's best to make parts that are symmetrical that don't really care what orientation they need to be in to be assembled properly. Most vehicle tires are symmetrical because of how the tread pattern is designed, so it does not matter which way they're put onto the car rim. 
However, some tires do require specific direction for the rotating tire to be effective in its operation. An example, this is farm tractor tires or even some snow tires. I mean, I even have some snow tires that require a specific direction. And on the sidewall, the tire has the word outside and an arrow indicating what direction they are required to be mounted on the rim and then mounted onto the car. In some applications, asymmetry is required to prevent the assembly operator to have no way of assembling the part backwards. Going back to my snow tire example, you could still put the tire on backwards since the only thing preventing you from doing so is word outside on that arrow on the side of the tire. So making this subassembly asymmetrical will help airproof the assembly by making it really hard or impossible to assemble it incorrectly. The fifth way to help us reduce costs for design for assembly is reducing the number of parts used in that assembly. Going back to my earlier example with the four electronic dial gauge block that was made of alloy steel that would rust in the ocean coast environments, the block was an inch thick and it was attached to a flat plate that has special groove cut in the plate and machined there so that the plate of the block could rest in and then the three screws would attach to the block to the bottom of the plate. Machining costs and extra assembly time could have been avoided if a two inch wide aluminum block was chosen instead making the fixture assembly only one piece instead of five pieces. Simple designs are for the most part better to reduce costs number of components and assembly time. The sixth and last way to help us reduce costs for design for assembly is using standard parts. An extreme example of not doing this is machining standard bolt sizes and nuts yourself instead of just purchasing the standard fasteners online. Making the fasteners yourself will make them five times or more expensive. It is always better to purchase as many standard off-the-shelf parts as much as possible to reduce the design and supply chain costs. It is nice when you have multiple sub-assemblies you can just purchase online and then add them to your main component that you had to make in-house to make the assembly and supply chain process extremely streamlined. Well, that wraps up our podcast episode. Thanks again, my friend, for listening as we talked about the law of design for manufacturing and assembly. If you have any other questions or comments you would like to submit, or feedback about the Continuous Improvement Journey podcast, email me at hayden at cijourney.com, which is H-A-Y-D-E-N at cijourney.com. I will catch back up with you again in the next episode.